0: Welcome to the Revenue Blueprint. This is not another sales podcast on tips and tactics. Instead, we focus on unfiltered stories from founders and early stage sales leaders on what it takes to build a successful revenue team. If you get just a little bit of value from this, we ask that you pay it forward by liking, sharing, and subscribing to the podcast. All right, let's get into the episode.
1: very special guest. Kyle Boyer leads OpenView's growth team as an operating partner. He's responsible for advising portfolio companies on strategies to increase revenue growth and dominate their markets. I stole that from the website. He previously worked at Simon Kutcher, where he's developed his superpower on pricing and packaging. So excited to learn some secrets and tips there. And of course, I follow his every thought in his newsletter, Growth Unhinged, as well as his PLG Weekly from OpenView, which we were just talking about. Had a great one today. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Let's dive right in. So operating partner, OpenView is a very well-known growth stage VC, although I know you do some earlier stuff as well. And operating partner, as I said before, are... Favorite type of partner and ones who get their hands dirty. But how do you describe your role at Open at OpenView as an operating partner? It's a good question.
2: And honestly, operating partner roles look extremely different at every firm, and even within OpenView, we have a, a few operating partners, and each of us tackles something different across the firm. In my role, I lead our growth team and our marketing function. And what that means is our team wants to be the first resource of founder calls when they've got a challenge scaling their business. So that could be on the acquisition side, on the monetization side, setting up a PLG motion, increasingly talking about churn and retention challenges, and because that's top of mind for everyone right now. And then what we do is we'll learn what they're facing, and then we can either provide advice. Based on our experience working with other portfolio companies make an introduction to someone in our network who is great at solving whatever they're running up against or we could even scope out a bespoke consulting style project that might last four to eight weeks where we go get our hands dirty and you know run surveys look at their data talk to customers and deliver a really specific recommendation. And so the work varies a lot. It's constantly a question of prioritizing across portfolio companies and all of the different things that we could do with a portfolio company. And another thing that we think a lot about is how do we open source what we do so that people can feel like they can try open to you before they buy it, right? So what's our PLG strategy as a firm. And often that's like, if we're getting questions multiple times from portfolio companies, if we we did a bunch of work to study it and give them really great insights, let's share that back with the community on our blog or in our newsletter. And so that ends up being a really great flywheel for (laughs) sourcing experts. And then delivering hopefully useful recommendations for the portfolio.
0: I have one quick follow-up on that because operating partner roles, right? Like they can be very nebulous and you're working on so many different things. Are there any KPIs or OKRs or metrics that you are your performance is measured by? <laughs> yes.
2: So that's changed over time as a firm for sure. And as I've built out more of a team than I work with. When we think about success for my role and my team. First of well, all, it's based on the referenceability with our portfolio companies. So we want every new portfolio company we invest in within six months post investment to be highly referenceable for us. Obviously that's subjective, but they feel like, feel really good about having made the choice to work with us as a VC firm. And they would proactively share that with other founders if asked to do so. And so that's our North star, right? Of really delivering upon the promise of why a founder you know chose us to begin with and so that's something we look at regularly we we try to have you know our own internal customer success process for new portfolio companies and we know that it's you know not just my work as an individual contributor which i still do even as a partner but the work across the firm and across the team to make that happen the other thing so that's you know just mission critical north star for the team But then I also run our marketing as a firm, right? And so for us, we used to think about marketing in terms of more like classic SaaS marketing metrics. So, how many page views did we get? How much of our traffic was driven by organic search? What were open rates and rates on newsletters? Like, just more like high level broadcast oriented metrics. We've changed that completely to now focus on a direct marketing approach and measuring success based on influencing founders in their journey with OpenView. And so everything is, it really changes the mindset of what we do as a team, but we'll set KPIs each half for we want to get X number of founders in target shows to these points in the journey where hopefully the end goal is that they're raising their hand to talk to our investment team before the investment team's ever reached out cold to someone. And so that's, that would be, you know, really great success from a marketing standpoint is that our brand is so strong externally that the best founders are coming to us
1: you followed one of your own lessons about identifying the icp and moving them through the product-led growth strategy versus Click through on about people you don't really care about. Not that you wouldn't care about the greater startup community, but people that would never be involved with OpenView or buy the OpenView product to have you as your their investment partners.
2: Absolutely. Well, our, funny story. The best performing piece on our blog for five years running was a sample daily report to your SDR manager. I would had that on our blog. I don't know. Was that reaching founder? Probably not. It was really painful to not do things like refresh and re-release that or it was starting to slip on organic search. Like how do we get the marketing team to not care about right? Drove significant traffic. It drove subscribers to our newsletter, but it was not the kinds of people we wanted to reach. And so we're now much more comfortable Getting rid of that kind of activity and focusing on bespoke programs, sometimes that don't even scale that well, that resonate exceptionally strongly within a narrow group of people. Without giving us
1: all of your secret sauce away to the other investors who are, I guess, your competition, what are some examples or surprising things that really resonate with founders that you found move the needle and bringing those folks into that, into the community, into the product-led growth motion of OpenView?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We are still learning for sure. One of the things that we launched recently that's had a phenomenal response is our PLG Mastermind community. So this is a founder-only group. but Then we focused on early stage founders, so be a pre-revenue or single-digit million ARR in revenue and founders that want to build out a PLG strategy. For most of them, it's their first time thinking about PLG. And we, so it's, we've done webinar series before and never get founders to have any interest in attending a webinar, right? Like, a founder's not going to take time out of their day, even if it's a great person that they learn from. So we would run webinar series, maybe get 200 people signing up, 40 people showing up. And of those, 41 was a founder. Just never got them to be successful. With this PLG Mastermind program, it's like the exact opposite. So it's a, it's a cohort based program, it's a series over the course of essentially nine months. That includes like founder networking. So they'll get matched up with peer founders in the group that have similar characteristics to them. We also were really thoughtful around the agenda to make sure that it covered all the core things folks would need to know about PLG. And then the reality is it ends up looking kind of like a, you know, a webinar series, but just with the same group of people and in a much more collaborative and conversational way. And so this is a webinar plus community is the shorthand for it. We've gotten hundreds of founders to raise their hand to want to be part of it. Founders are nominating other founders in their network and bringing them in. Even just had a founder reach out to me who's part of the program because they want to get in touch with our investment team. They bootstrapped their PLG company for a while now. And it's just amazing to see how well that is resonating. And I think for me, in some ways, when you narrow that focus of what you're doing, then the people that you want to jump into the boat actually get really excited because it feel purpose-built for them as opposed to just something that's generic that probably isn't going to be all that useful.
0: Follow-up on that. Do you think, is there a play similar to that that early-stage companies can run for themselves?
2: There absolutely is. One of the, So one of my favorite examples in the PLG space is Pocus. I don't know if folks know about Pocus. They're in, a, in the product-led sales, tech space, hot category right now. You've got... An, correlated top. There's a bunch of companies in this space. But what Polk did is they said, hey, this this isn't a space where there's only a handful of companies doing a really great job at this. Traditional sales leaders are trying to learn what does product-led sales mean. PLG companies that don't have a sales team are trying to figure out how to add sales. Everyone's trying to learn. And they built a community. It was an invite-only community of product-led sales experts. I was part of that community in the early days and they did such a great job trying to like pull best practices from people and just stories and playbooks. And then that would bring more people in, but they kept it exclusive. It wasn't, you know, we're not trying to get thousands and thousands of people in this group. It's more valuable actually if it's intimate and if everyone that's part of the community really like wants to get to know everyone else. So they had this approach before they built a product and they just reached out, invited the top folks to their community interviewed them shared that those interviews back with folks ran community events and they used those learnings to build a product that was going to resonate and solve gaps in the market so they were kind of building an audience for their product as they were building their product and it's sort of i think a great playbook for a company that is able to really hone their icp and is trying to do something different in the market
1: yeah it's quite fascinating to be able to bring that of group together before you build, and then you already have your ICP of what you're going to be kind of testing your product value against because you know that's them. In that example, did they promote it outside of, maybe promotes the wrong word, but share those learnings outside of their invite-only community? Like how did they, any tips and tricks around that specific exercise of, because if it's invite-only, it's too exclusive, then nobody knows about it and you can't get there. Like, how do they strike the right balance of, let's say using the nightclub analogy, keeping it exclusive, but keeping it full?
2: Yep. Yeah. Well, it's a plain book that you're starting to see more and more folks run. So do something exclusive for a small group of people, but document those learnings, write up a really compelling piece of content based on those learnings, distribute that, you know, ideally in multiple ways on LinkedIn and other social media through video clips and just key takeaways. Get the person that participated to also reshare that with their network, right? And then pull that into a newsletter to have ongoing engagement with your audience, start community threads in the Slack group, really taking that one asset or that one event and turning it into multiple weeks of, of insights. That, that sort of LinkedIn presence and then that broader, more mass marketing tells people that, hey, look, like you're really thoughtful. You get what they're going through. And even if, you know, they're not going to necessarily be invited to join this community, they're still able to benefit from it
1: through other channels. And subscribing to a newsletter, for example, they could be on the newsletter, but maybe not be included in the roundtables or the other different events. What were the type of events? Exactly.
2: Oh, well, they know, so they're, flagship one that I participated in are just amas with great people around specific topics so it might be how can plG companies go outbound and they recently had you know someone at webflow talking about their story doing that or how did plG companies think about product qualified leads and product qualified accounts bring in someone who's an expert there right so they'll really be thoughtful around finding the right person for the right topic that the community wants to hear about and then their content quality is quite good in terms of repackaging what might be in a webinar or AMA format into something that feels like it was meant to be a you know a blog post or a playbook. Other things that they'll do dinner intimate dinners, they also have a number of these people that are part of their community on their cap table. So are like literally invested in the business. And so they've they've been you know, this is it's a company, full disclosure, like we're not invested, it in Focus. they're not a portfolio company. I've just been very impressed by their thoughtfulness. And it's a community that I find myself wanting to be a part of, right? And that's really rare to find a support company doing that.
1: So it just sounds like a big takeaway. I mean, it goes back to the identifying your ICP and staying narrow to start, but also going very deep to the people in that ICP. Because like, if it's fluffy and it attracts a lot of people and gets clicks, you're not going to be interested because you're like how can we go even deeper and get like, what are things I don't know from people who have done stuff that I wouldn't even understand, like, you know, where it goes that deep. So that's an interesting one that kind of flies in the face of what you'd assume with like, oh, we got to scale up, we got to apply. But I think, you, I mean, even in this one, they're going niche within niche to go deep. And that's what attracts the right people to that community. I think that's awesome. I have
0: one, one last follow-up on this subject. I think what you're describing makes total sense and in some ways seems very simple. Right. But there's also a reason that a lot of companies aren't doing this. And my guess, too, is a lot of either like like older school heads of marketing or founders are worried about it being too long tail or the work that goes into it. So if you were giving advice to a marketing leader or like second, first level manager or something like that at an early stage startup, how would you advise them to convince their executive team that doing something like this is worth it?
2: It's a great question. And it's not always worth it, right? It might not be. I guess it goes back to how you're going to measure success as a business. And this is actually the piece that I wrote about today with Chris Walker from Refine Labs, that a lot of times we measure success based on digital attribution systems that are essentially looking at demand capture as opposed to what creates demand. And so by focusing on the demand capture, we miss out on dark social and other things that are really influential to our target customers. I think So make sure that you're measuring the right things, right? You have visibility into this dark funnel. Otherwise, you might be doing things that are actually really effective for you, but you have no way of proving whether there was ROI there.
1: Sorry to interrupt, could you kind of describe dark funnel, dark the darkness that you alluded to? I'm less familiar with that, and I, I'm sure our listeners would be interested in hearing what that means.
2: Sure thing. <laughs> Essentially, in the... Marketing community that focuses on digital, right? We can, we have an, an assumption of being able to track interactions very well. So we can see who lands on our website. We can see maybe what ad brought them to the website. Even if they land on our website and they haven't signed up for a demo or signed up for a trial, we can maybe even reveal the, the domain of their IP, right? So there's a lot we've gotten very smart as a marketing community. The thing is a lot of interactions that buyers have aren't tracked in those same ways. And so we almost have this like false sense of security around understanding our users and our pipeline. If if a target customer reads something you post on LinkedIn or maybe likes it, that's not data that's going to be sent to your attribution system. That's not that you could maybe manually track that and pull it together, but it's really hard to pair that influence, right? So you might have someone who is in a separate community that's private and they asked, Hey, what's the best products for X? They get a bunch of responses. One is really popular. And so they Google your product and land on your website. That's going to show up as essentially driven by Google search, right? As what is the, what's the attribution? And you're going to miss that other thing that actually created the demand in the first place. when I'm thinking about dark funnel, it's like these aspects that are really important in influencing your buyers, but that you don't have visibility into.
1: That's a great, uh, great summary. Thank you. I'm learning too, selfishly. This is, I get to get the education from you. Thank you. Maybe kind of, there's a few different areas want to touch on. You alluded to in your organization at oh, you've been talking about churn, right? Also growth related to sales. It's all one big funnel, right? Kind of how do you see this evolution of sales and growth kind of converging and evolving? And I know that's kind of a big topic, but what are some of the recent trends that you see and maybe you use to to kind of educate folks that are heading in this direction and want to understand it at a deeper level?
2: Sales and growth and everything in between. So I think one of the trends that I'm seeing is that there used to be almost this dichotomy of like you were P L G. Or you were like sales led or more of a traditional software company. So increasingly, folks are mindful that the answer is always both. In the end, if you look at the top performing software companies, they tend to have both motions and it's a matter of like time and sequencing. And so I think that's one is just more complicated go to market motions in order to reach a broader audience. Based on what they care about and how they want to engage with your brand and your product. And so I think it forces people to learn about something that they maybe are less familiar with. Because ultimately, they have to think about both PLG and sales as opposed to it being either or. Other things are, you know, in this buying environment right now, when folks have customers who are maybe cutting costs, downsizing, there's a lot of scrutiny in the funnel. And it's really hard for folks to win deals right now. It's so what that tells me, or at least the trend that I'm seen is people getting sophisticated around segmentation to really hone where there are still pockets of demand and make sure that they're really doubling down on narrow ideal customer profile where there's still plenty of opportunity. Or people have to get comfortable with a different sales methodology to get a lot better at talking about the economic value of their products. Times things is no longer a great value proposition, right? You have to talk, talk about actual like cost savings, revenue generation, like real tangible business benefits and getting to above the line decision makers and to folks that could be blockers for buying your product. So that's a trend that, you know, it's been happening now for what, six to 12 months, but it's just something that's top of mind across companies that I work with.
1: That's really helpful. One of the things you mentioned before is like this convergence that's happening. And in much bunch of the companies that I've advised, the ones that have been more product-led, growth-oriented, it's we've had to be very creative in finding the head of revenue to own this function because it can't just be old-school salesperson, right, because that's not going to work. And if it's just a growth person, great, you can drive people into the funnel, but you can't net out the bigger fish that are gonna drive a big portion of your revenue. Like who have you seen being the best kind of profiles or that to, to head up a product-led kind of revenue organization? And the, my kind of follow-up to that is like, how does someone who's really excited about that kind of position themselves to be able to head in that direction? Cause it's not the traditional SDR, AE, sales leader, VP sales right? And it's not the growth side of things where you move up on the growth stack. It's like this weird convergence. But who have you seen as the best
2: profiles to lead these type of teams? If I had, a, if I had an answer to that, I might have a lot more money. I, unicorn hunting? And... Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's just not that many people that fit the profile. What I tend to recommend Profile, let's say that, if
1: in skill set, if you could make up this unicorn person.
2: Yeah, so either, I mean, find some of him when it was early and do it at a company that you want to replicate the journey that they went through. But that's that person is going to be really hard to find. And it's hard to tell who was actually responsible for building out the motion. And you also want to make sure they're not just taking a playbook that worked for one company and trying to retrofit it your customer race with your product
1: so, several experiences so they have multiple data points to draw on okay but this also <laughs> hasn't been happening that
2: long right so then you're like well okay there's three people out there that i could call on so what i tend to find happens instead is that you find someone that's maybe more of a player coach and in the early days they're testing different plays and opportunities pairing sales with plg and so this might be someone business operations, someone in customer success, someone in product, but who is very customer centric. Like there's can be a lot of different backgrounds for
1: this. Less of the kind of alpha sales profile that's used to doing kind of sales led selling. Someone who's a little bit more on the, like you said, customer success, Maybe less like we got to hit our quota no matter what, and a little bit more of oh let's just make sure this user is successful. But I can also sell them the gated value or whatever's further down the funnel.
2: Okay, exactly. And a lot of the in the early days, it's more customer discovery, right? So trying to learn from folks what their use case, what their use case is, the value they're seeing from the product, why you know what's creating friction for them, why haven't they spent or expanded the product to others in the organization. Who would the buyer be, right? Like there's a lot of discovery in the early days. And there's probably honestly product gaps that are holding companies back from being able to sell larger deals to bigger companies. And you don't necessarily wanna be too aggressive in scaling the go-to-market motion until you have a sense of like product market fit with that segment. And so I start with someone that is going to be curious to kind of do that, you know, even six to nine months of discovery and product building to develop product market fit. And you'll start to have a sense for the different plays that exist. And so those plays could be, hey, there's multiple accounts within the same domain and we can do an enterprise consolidation play where we like get. Everyone on one platform and on unified visibility, yada yada. Another play might be we've landed with an, an individual, they've shared the product with their team, but there's so much more opportunity within this account. And we can work with that, that who's a power user to navigate the account, get to the decision maker. And sell that decision maker on you know much more of an enterprise grade offering but there's different there's going to be different plays for every company and then there's going to be ways that you want to leverage your product data as a signal to say hey look this account is actually really ready to buy and we have a big opportunity to layer in a person in the go to market motion to help them with that process so i think that i guess to summarize you need someone that's really willing to experiment and see what works and develop that product market fit. And you probably don't want to be too aggressive on comp with that person in the early days, like probably don't even put them on a traditional quota. Pay them a regular sort of plus bonus and focus on the learnings and then scale from a position
1: market fit. So those learnings will help inform who you should hire based on the different types of motions on the more commercially minded folks that will be able to influence the funnel. That's really helpful. And then who, so assuming you have someone leading some growth efforts here to fill this funnel, where does this player, coach, commercial, customer-centric it's like list of things, where do they fit in the order? Do they report to growth? Do they report to product? Do they report to... St- I know I've seen them do each, but like, what do you think is usually the best recipe for who growth reports to, and then who this, we got to come up with a really clever, you should give us the clever, what do you call this person?
2: First hire, commercial person? Yeah, go-to-market lead is a catch-all type.
1: Who do they report to? How do they fit in the organization?
2: Yeah. So I mean, like, let's start on the growth side and unpack that for folks. So by growth, a PLG organization, growth folks are typically the folks who understand and customer journey from landing on your website, signing up for the product, taking some actions in the product where they're finding value, maybe purchasing on a self-service basis and then deepening their usage over time. And so your growth folks are going to understand that customer journey. They're going to have really great analytics and where there's the most friction. And then they're going to design experiments, often in product experiments, to try to reduce friction and demonstrate more value to get more and more folks through that customer journey and get through it faster. So the group teams tend to be more like product plus marketing plus analytics, and they could kind of report in a lot of different places in an organization. I tend to like to either have them report into product because there's a lot of shared DNA with the product org, right? Like these are often growth product managers who design product-based solutions and also have you know shared access to the product operations sort of stack. They've shared access to engineers. They need to prioritize their experiments against other things on the roadmap. Like having them part of the product organization tends to be smooth. That said, if they are part of the product organization, they can they can sometimes be lost, right? In terms of their ability to both have impact across the funnel and lost in terms of like their product roadmap sort of items are weighed against every other product roadmap item I mean, as if they were, we're all the same
1: away from the ceo versus the peer
2: to the product leader exactly exactly and so for a product leader you might go all right i've got these growth experiments that might have a 50 50 chance of working." Or I've got an enterprise feature that customers are asking me about, like I'm going to put my engineers on the enterprise feature or I'm building the new product. And so these growth PMs might end up not having great access to engineers, not being able to run experiments that are going to have the biggest impact, right? And so the alternative would be have them report straight to the CEO. In that case, you want someone that has that just has more tenure, more experience, is able to be more influential across functions isn't just siloed into product. So te- I typically like start with a growth PM reporting with a product leader, and then eventually bring on a true growth team. So that's more on the product growth side, and then on the customer-facing or sales assist side. For these folks, I don't like to have them report to the growth leader. Maybe that's me personally because ultimately the end goal is to build out a true revenue organization, right across customer success, rev ops, and that's going to be the end state. And so they could report to the head of growth, maybe in, a, in an interim basis or a short-term basis, but ultimately you want someone that has the capacity to either contribute or grow into a role of building on a true customer organization. And so I would, if that's the end goal, then I'd probably want them to report directly to it, you know, a CEO or and have someone that, you know, you believe in the, the potential for them to be able to see that.
1: I love it. That's really helpful. Again, yeah. I'm taking many learnings for myself. Maybe on the same topic of growth, or maybe I'd love to hear any major misconceptions that you wish kind of everyone understood about growth that you kind of feel that you're continuing to clarify to people. Is there anything that's top of mind that you're like, I wish founders who are just getting started or anyone in this area understood this about growth?
2: Okay, how much time do you have?
1: Pick the top one. Yeah.
0: yeah what's the most what's the biggest one?
1: I What's one that pains you the most maybe or causes the most pain in your advising roles?
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of times founders or founding teams are very product-minded and technical and they know a product, you know, should exist or it's better than the alternatives or that customers really need it. But they build more their, they, okay. their product first and then, all right, we have a great product. How do we get people to find out about it? And so it's almost like an assembly line, right? Of like, we've got the product, now we've got to break that. Now we got to sell it. And I think about, in a, especially in a PLG context, but even just in a more modern context, we have to build a product knowing there's a market for it, knowing how we're going to position it, how we're going to make money from it. I would want to know all of those things before I even write a single line of code. And so it's being willing to do more upfront work on the growth side, even before you have a product ready to sell.
1: So they bring you a product ready to sell and they're like, all right, how do I make this product-led growth? Exactly. And then I've heard that from uh, other folks that have struggled with founders that have products that are trying to steer it towards product-led growth. And they're like, this is like the die is cast. You're already too far down the road of selling this type of product to start to figure out how to do it. Neither you are going to have to overhaul everything, which might not work at all, or kind of give up on this effort because it's just not made and designed. And I think that's such a good lesson is like designed from the ground up from the beginning with all of these pieces in mind, which is much different than like build it and they will come or build it and then we'll build PLG. Yep.
2: I spent six years in pricing consulting at Simon Kutcher.
1: There's some good lessons there too. We also
2: see that like from a growth perspective, we see that with pricing and packaging because price is arguably the most powerful lever in terms of growing a product. It's also one that's like the least well understood by growth folks in general. And people build products. Cards, with right? You just do the three cards. One in Good, and better, best. Go for the one in the middle. What else do I need to know? Oh uh, yeah. A lot to unpack there. Uh, yeah. So we tend to, you know, build a product that we think people will value, but we don't build something knowing that there's a market for it and that there's a willingness to pay for what we're building. And so also times go survey folks after a product's in market. But where willingness to pay seems to be low and learn that if we had built XYZ features, willingness to pay would be 5x, 10x what it is for what was you know initially built. And so having a mindset towards not just what people would want to use, but what people would feel so compelled to use that they're willing to put down money in order to purchase it. That's a nuance <laughs> that it's hard to do in practice, takes real time and work but I wish founders would think about that earlier in the product building process.
1: So maybe on that topic of the test it, test the concept before you build it, specifically on the pricing side, what are some of the best practices or things that you've seen work when it's, how do you know someone would pay 5X more for one thing versus something else? How do you get that conviction?
2: Yeah, great question. So I, I just interviewed Rajat Bhargava, the CEO of Gem Club, one of our portfolio companies for growth on So they've scaled from zero to they're now worth like 2600000000 billion. It's been a great success story, really solid company. And Rajat's practice was actually start by writing white papers across different problems that they might want to solve for customers. And use those white papers to really explain what the problem is, why it's a problem and what the kind of ideal end state is. And they did some light paid marketing to try to drive demand to those white papers to see what would resonate. Like what where is there a market for what they for the concept of what they're trying to build? And then they would have a call to action of like, if this is interesting for you, get in touch with us. And they would see what drove clicks to the white papers and then what drove actual responses. Then they'd get on the phone. They'd have hundreds of these customer diligence conversations. And for all of them, they would ask questions to gauge the value perception that folks saw like how important is this problem to you are you willing to you know sign a commitment are you willing to be a beta customer how much are you willing to pay for it like they would ask real questions like quantitative if
1: like would you pay if we could build this for you would you pay this great will you sign this for us to build it great we already have indicators of revenue or
2: pricing exactly and so and they didn't go in just with one white paper right they they went in with sticks with different value propositions to be able to see Is that are there likes for any of these things? And if so one of the The best things to build.
1: The initial thesis of your product or of your startup is almost never what it ends up being successful. So they did this even lighter, which is like, let's come up with ideas and see what is actually compelling and valuable. It sounds like the, it's the joke is like, oh, let's see your business plan. There's no such thing as a business plan anymore, right? That's like an olden day term. It sounds like you've co- the latest business plan is test the business plan against what people will buy before you even need to build a business plan or build
2: the business at all. Exactly. And, I mean, he's fortunate. He's a 10X entrepreneur, right? So he was very hesitant to jump into yet another venture without having that confidence that there was a real market opportunity and need for it. And feedback he gave me that I totally agree with is that if you just you know walk someone through the concept that you have or maybe share a demo, you'll get a lot of like, oh, that's really cool. Like, that's super interesting. That looks great. But you need to ask for the commitment of, Ari, are you willing to sign up as a beta customer? Are you willing to do X, Y, Z? That's when you can are these people serious about their feedback or if are they just <laughs> people,
1: uh, just being nice? Not even bullying, yeah. just people tend to be nice. And when they're not forced to buy something, why would they say something negative? You put all this effort into building this thing that I'm not going to use.
2: I'm not going to make you feel bad. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. And the, for other folks who maybe have existing products in market, but have a lot more to build, right? Yeah. For those kinds of companies, what I like to do is break the product into the component parts. Like what are the key capabilities that are adding value to customers? And what's the one sentence value proposition of each of them? And then you survey customers or you could run this in an interview process. And I just, I leave it fairly open-ended. If you could design your own package, these as the 10 building blocks, which of these would you consider be a must-have? what are nice to have, and what are things that you don't need. And as they go through, if you do this as an interview, you can ask why for certain things. And you don't want to bias them or try to influence their thinking, like really understand from their perspective. And then what I do is for everything that they... have been selling, right? It's very different. Not influencing at all is different than
1: influencing entirely. So yeah, yeah. That, it sounds like you have to be very like clinical and kind of,
2: yeah. And that's why a lot of our portfolio companies pull in our team to try to run this research for them so that both like they can get honest feedback from customers and that it's the feedback isn't clouded by their internal perceptions of what what's going to resonate in the market. Well, so I take the anything that folks rated as a must-have and then I had them either stack rank them from most to least valuable or allocate 100 points across them. Again, with this idea of like more points to things that are more valuable. And then I say, all right, imagine you had access to this package you just made. At what price would you consider this to be a bargain? And then you know, I, that's an uncomfortable question to ask someone and then pause because there's going to be an awkward silence there. Like people are going to think about it and you wait and you get an answer. And some sometimes from there, I'll kind of ask them right? and they'll tell you some really interesting answers. They'll be like, well, we pay X for this product. And I think that this would do people to replace that or they start to walk through the economic value that they're going to see or like you- whatever
1: they're. Why are they coming oh. up with that number, which is almost impossible to derive when you're trying to come up with your price? Exactly, so you have don't have the buyer's
2: context of
1: they're like, well, I'm comparing it to this. Exactly, like, it's for that, why would I pay that much for that? Interesting.
2: And for a lot of companies, you don't, you know, you're building something new that doesn't exist in the market. That doesn't mean folks don't have any sort of sense for how much they pay for it because they have other things that are part of their tech stack or other budget priorities. And then so ask about what's a bargain price. And then there's a whole methodology. can share this with folks that are interested, but it's called Van Westendorp, where you ask a series of three questions. So I start with bargain and then I take that answer and I go, great. Now, what price would be getting expensive? And so they normally give a higher answer. That second answer is more in line with what they'd really be willing to pay for it. And then you ask one final one, all right, now what's a price that would be so expensive that you'd no longer consider it? It's out of the question. And that's like the max amount that someone would buy it for. And usually (laughs) as an earlier stage company, you never want to get to that high price point but that gives you the full range of price points that you could potentially charge. And then you have that trade-off of where you want to fall within the demand curve. That's, it,
0: That's it, well. right, it, It's such a cool exercise to go through. Imagine, right, it takes a lot of work to do this. So do you have to do this in face-to-face or like calls? Or do you think you can do this via surveys and still be effective?
2: So if it's a PLG company with a lot of users, a survey works great, right? Your user is your buyer right? in many cases and, and the survey works just fine. If you're selling to an enterprise customer where, you know, there's maybe hundreds of users in an account, only a handful of people that are even know what the price is that are involved in the buying decision, you do generally want to have interviews because otherwise you're just missing so much context or you might be getting survey feedback from the wrong person and so for i guess that's where i make the delineation if it's a deal size or it's an smb customer or a deal size generally under like 10k a year surveys work great if it starts to become larger you'll want to talk to them yeah yeah
0: their question on kind of this type of information advice you're dispelling to your portfolio. Can you tell us a story of maybe like one of the more impactful advisory conversations you had with your portfolio in regards to growth and sales over the last like three or six months as things have shifted pretty dramatically?
2: Yeah, that's a tough question. What is the most impactful? If you put them
1: on the spot, give us a success story of all of the value provide, Kyle. There, There's a variety of people that can find value from hearing
0: that. And I'm just curious to hear something that is that people could relate to is like that they might be going through a similar problem but also like a combination of like the framework to your approach and what actually worked
2: yeah it's a great question i can't get too specific about the company but one that i think just was a really important thing that has come up and it comes up with a number of portfolio companies is that folks have pricing that's flat and simple in the early days and so this one company had fixed price you know, hey, the customer has between X and Y employees. And so the price is Y per year. It has every feature that we sell. It has no usage-based component. That kind of pricing model has worked well. And like it's customer-friendly. Customers are really happy about it. They don't feel nickel and dimed. It's easy to sign folks up. But what you end up seeing is that net retention ends up being really poor because you have no expansion opportunity within an account, no way to monetize products you are and you've set expectations with your customer that they're not going to have to spend more over time and so in the early days around series a it can be really challenging for folks to change that perspective because often the founder is still very involved in selling they know that this model resonates with customers and and it's gotten them to this point which has generally been you know, a successful race, but it's not going to get them to Series B, Series C, Series D. And so trying to walk folks through having an expansion path within their pricing, ideally based on usage, but alternatively based on features and designing that in a way where they're not just selling the highest end package at the beginning, but like it's true land and expand pricing where they're going to land with an entry-level package and then have add-ons or upgrade paths That, that's something that I've had those conversations multiple times. Every time I've had them, it ends up, you know, having an impactful result, but it's very tricky because it's not, it's, it's hard to change that mindset.
1: I am glad you brought this up and I'm glad we have you on that I can ask you this question. So I've heard and I've repeated this and maybe I'll stop based on your answer, but that churn is maybe I, maybe I read it from some something you wrote so you could take credit for it. But it's if you're expanding, if you're upselling, the likelihood of churn drops dramatically, even if your kind of net promoter score would remain the same. So if you just have like a lower net promoter score, but you're buying more, you the psychology is that we wouldn't cancel this because we're consuming more of it. We must value this versus if there's no more to buy, you can look and say, well, let's just look at how much we actually like this and it's easier to churn. Do you see that correlated? And am I explaining it? And is it correlated for that reason? Or like how do you think about that?
2: Well, I, I guess my hot take, I don't think NPS is all that correlated with churn for retention okay. in general. I don't see it very correlated within a company. I don't see it correlated across portfolio companies.
1: That and get you canceled. There's (laughs) an NPS lobby that is not going to be happy about that.
2: I can unpack why that is, but I just haven't seen it done particularly well. And like the mindset of having an NPS survey more from a like customer advocacy and community building standpoint, and just making sure if you don't measure it, like your team isn't going to focus on it. But that's, but it's not going to be correlated with retention in my experience. to your point a big reason why folks churn is that they feel like they were oversold and that it becomes almost a binary we're going to renew or not renew whereas with if you have more of a usage-based model or a land and expand motion you land someone and then you earn the right for them to buy more and more over time but you also potentially give them a path to spend less if they're not seeing that full value because you can find a price That aligns with the value that they're actually receiving from the product you're also very incentivized as a company to do things that drive more adoption and more value right getting more champions in an account driving more engagement building features that lead to more successful outcomes from your customers and so this kind of business of building a usage-based company i think ends up building a much stronger foundation for growth and you look at you know, there's a number of great stories that I could talk about usage-based pricing all day long. But one of my favorite is HubSpot, which folks know of them as a big success story now. They're a local company here in Boston. They used to be across the street from where I worked. And in the early days, I think up until Series B and Series C, they had like packages. They called them small, medium, and large. And there was very little upsell across packages. And the packages were essentially a fixed fee. X price per year. And their net retention, they've shared publicly, was only about 70, 75% at the time, which, when we think about public companies, everyone is above 100% these days. And best in class is, you know, 120 and above. Snowflake's up at like 170. So a 70% net retention would not have put them on a path to IPO. They spent a long time figuring out a metric that they could charge against that also aligned really well with the value their customers saw. They picked marketing contacts. And so you land with a certain number of marketing contacts included in your plan. They're going to offer software that helps you build your contact list. And as you build your contact list, you have more people to sell stuff to, and you can make more money as a business. And then they're going to charge you more as a result in future periods. And just that change drove their their NDR from about 70, 75% to essentially approaching a hundred percent. Now they've layered that on with additional product expansion and just, you know, better product experiences. And so they're now, you know, obviously a very successful company, but that change I think is probably one of the most fundamental things that they did that put them on the path where they are today.
1: That's awesome. And I promised we'd get you out of, out of here on time. A question we'd like to ask for everyone. And I know we could, we're gonna have to have you back. We scratched the surface of the questions we wanted to ask, and this has been hugely. I warned you that
2: I'm long winded. so Sorry
1: about long winded <laughs> sounds bad. I think detail oriented. You go deep in the niche, right, in the ICP of your audience. But uh, what's what's one lesson or piece of advice that you think about
2: almost every day? For me, I'm gonna have to share two because I was I couldn't come up with one. Just what? So one of them is like share what I actually think and don't hold back. And so I come from a consulting world where. It depends was generally the right answer. But like show your cards and you wanted to have enough flexibility to really like put in the work to find the right answer. And you know, that's why people were paying you. In the startup world and as a VC, people are looking to me for pattern recognition. They want rules of thumb. They want direction. They want to actually hear real feedback. And they are smart enough that they will test ideas against their own customers. They'll really think about it. They'll crowdsource feedback from other people. But me telling them it depends, it doesn't help anyone. And so actually be, do the work to clarify my point of view and then be direct with that founder on my point of view. I'll obviously make very clear that the decision is theirs and I will support them regardless of what decision they make. But like, they want to hear my perspective. The second thing that I just think is useful for more people, and I think about this constantly as I write a lot, is delete the first sentence that you write. get rid of passive voice. And so my writing used to be full of like, you could do this, or this is interesting. That's so boring to read. And so we're all writing, whether it's on social media, on emails, on newsletters, and putting in a little bit of extra work to clarify the way you write makes you reach a lot more people and makes the message so much more impactful.
1: I love it. I love it. We could go on for hours just on those topics. So Kyle, this has been specifically for me reading your content and learning from you. certainly a pleasure and very grateful to have
2: you here, man. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invite. This is fun.
0: Yeah. Thanks for coming. We're looking forward to consuming more of your content and and hopefully having you back on later to hear how some of this stuff is going. And real quick before you get out of here, where can people find you?
2: If I'm on LinkedIn, I... I post a few times a week and then on its newsletter it's called growth unhinged you could just type it kylepoyer.substack.com easy to find amazing thanks so much kyle thanks guys